All right, so if you were here last week, you know that Matt taught and he uh, ended in chapter seven and we're gonna pick up where he left off and he dealt with the stoning of Stephen. Um, one of those events where you, you read about it and you, you just can't help but say, why? Why did this have to happen? Why did this young man who had a vibrant ministry, effective ministry, suddenly get snuffed out? And we're going to pick up that theme as we move into uh, chapters 8 and chapter 9. And um, we'll see that, you know, we have to read the book of Acts with the mindset that I think Luke wants us to have that God is in control. God is working in ways that we can't see. Not only back then in the first century, but even now in our lives, in our day, in the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of life that we go through, God is in control and God is working. So what I want to do is just real briefly look back and how did we end last week? Because it's going to uh, impact what we look at this week. So we saw Stephen had been teaching the Jewish leaders. We pick it up in uh, verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by, infuriated by his accusation because he had basically taken everything they had accused him of and turned it back on them. And he had done it by reviewing the history of Israel and showing them that you are just like your ancestors and you have done everything that they have done. You have rebelled against God. You've rejected the leadership of Moses. You have killed the prophets and now you've killed Jesus. And so they're not real happy and they react. They get in a rage. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes steadily into heaven, sees the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And then he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now, Matt didn't deal with that particular verse, but it jumps out at me because once again, he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the, the high priest, and all these religious elites. He's given them a history lesson they didn't need. And then he's turned on them and said, pointing his finger and said, you're guilty. You're the ones. And then he says this, and this is one of those verses that is so easy to read and just kind of blow past. But listen to what he says. I see the heavens open and the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. What's he saying to these people? He's just told them you killed the Messiah, but he's alive. And I see him standing at God's right hand. How would that have impacted the high priest in the Sanhedrin? Not real well. Why? Because Jesus, in their mind, was not the Son of God. It's the reason they killed him, blasphemy. They didn't think he was the Messiah. They most certainly don't think he's standing at the right hand of God. But what does Stephen say? I see him. I don't only see him. I see him. I see God. So here's this Hellenistic Jew who's given them a history lesson, pointed his finger and accusations at them, and now he's claiming to see God and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one they killed, standing at his hand. So you can see why they got upset. They put their hands over their ears. They shout at him. They rush at him. They drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him. And his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, this is the first introduction we get to Saul. And we know who Saul is. I doubt there's a guy in the room who doesn't know who Saul is. Saul is later known as Paul. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. He didn't get his name changed by Jesus. Okay, when he met him on the road, and we'll talk about that later, he didn't get his name changed. He'd always had two names. Many of them did. He had a Greek name. He had a Jewish name. 
but we know who this guy is. But what I want you to do is take what you think you know about Paul and set it aside. Because when we read this passage and when we move into chapter eight and specifically chapter nine, remember who Luke wrote this book to. He wrote it to Theophilus, uh, who is a Greek believer. It's the same person he wrote the gospel of Luke to. And Theophilus would not have known about Saul. He wouldn't have known all the details of his life. So when he's writing this, imagine Theophilus reading this for the first time. And he says, his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's not going, oh yeah, that's Saul. Yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, he went on three missionary journeys and he had a buddy named Silas and one named Barnabas and he, he mentored Timothy and Ty. He, he doesn't know any of that. We do, but set it aside because it's going to be important for us to just see. I love the way Luke writes because he writes in kind of a cryptic way sometimes and he drops these little hints that he knows things we don't know. So he drops these hints, but he, he then doesn't tell us much. And, then, and he's going to do it right here because he mentions them at the end of chapter seven. He says, they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Then you skip to the beginning of chapter eight and he says, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. So he's mentioned him once. Now he's going to mention him again. And now for the rest of chapter eight, he's never going to talk about him again. And part of me wants to go, well, hey, wait a minute. Saul, he's really important. The rest of the book of Acts is about him. Let's cut, cut to the chase. Start talking about Saul. He's not going to talk about Saul. He introduces him, and then he starts talking about somebody else. And it's, I think it's Luke's way of setting the stage for what's to come. And it's his way of, I think, showing you that here's this guy, Saul. You've just met him. He was standing there when Stephen got stoned. He was actually holding the robes, the cloaks of the men who stoned him. And then he tells us, and he was in complete agreement with what they did. And now he's going to move on. But he doesn't want you to forget who? Saul. He's important. So here he is in complete agreement with the killing of, of Stephen. So what I want to look at this morning is, and we've touched on it virtually every week, but I want to kind of key in on it because it's going to be critical for the rest of the study of the book of Acts, the sovereign hand of God. And we're going to see him moving all throughout this, even in the death of Stephen. Yes, it was a horrible thing. It was, in my mind, an untimely thing. It was an unfortunate thing, but it has God's hands all over it. And we're going to see that as we move forward. Because the sovereign hand of God, the sovereignty of God is one of the key themes of this entire book. It flows through every chapter, every verse from beginning of chapter 1 to chapter 28. The sovereign hand of God. So here you have Luke, who's a historian, but he's not just chronicling history. He's telling about God. He's trying to get Theophilus, and by extension, you and I, to understand how God is at work in these events, even when it doesn't appear to be so. And so we've seen Stephen get killed. We see uh, Saul standing there, holding the cloaks, fully agreeing with what's going on. And then we're going to talk about something else or someone else through the rest of chapter 8. So this idea of God's control um, it doesn't matter when I bring it up, how I bring it up, to what degree I bring it up, it makes most people uncomfortable. 
the sovereignty of God because it just, it just rubs us the wrong way. And, and we don't like the idea that God's in control. And some people view it and they take it and they distort it and they say, well, it just, if God's in control, then he's just this tyrant. He's just this dictator, this despot that controls everything. And, and we tend to see things from a negative, negative perspective. So if you look at this and say, well, if he's in control and Stephen died, what kind of God is that? But what do we read last week? Stephen died. Stephen was full of the spirit, grace, power. He performed miracles. He healed people. He preached the gospel. People came to faith and yet he died. Well, what kind of good God would let that happen? So you can come at this sovereignty thing from a negative perspective or a positive perspective, but it almost always makes us uncomfortable. And it goes against our deep, deep desire for control. I want to be in control. I want to be the master of my fate. I want to be the captain of my ship. I want to make decisions for my life. And the truth is you do and I do every day. But what you can't forget as a believer is that ultimately God is in control of any and all things. Does he let you make decisions? Yes. Do you make some good ones? Occasionally. Do you make some really stupid ones? If you're like me, most of the time. And you reap the results of those decisions. But it does not alter the sovereignty and the will and the control or the plan of God. When those people killed Jesus, did it alter in any way the plan of God? No, it completed and fulfilled it. When those men picked up stones and stoned Stephen, did it in any way alter the plan of God? No. It actually kicked it into a higher gear. And we're going to see that over and over again. But our obsession with our own rights and our need to control our lives is something we got to wrestle with and come to grips with because the Bible teaches us that God is in control and we can trust him. So let's look back at Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, written by Paul long after where we are in the story of Acts. But he writes to the Galatians and he says, even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. What does that tell you that Paul understands about himself? That even before he was born, God called him. God selected him. God had him. God had a plan for him. Even before he was born, before he came out of his mother's womb, God had a plan for him. And yet we know that he, he was standing there watching the death, the stoning of Stephen, happy that it was happening. And yet God had chosen him. Why did God do it that way? Why did God allow him to go through this period of his life? He wrote to the Romans, and this passage is one that, that uh, some people love, some people hate. Listen when he says, you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? See, what Paul's doing, writing to the Romans, is he's saying, God is in control. God is in control of all things. God is in control of those who come to faith and those who don't come to faith. And he says, I know what you're going to say. Well, if God's in control, then why does he get mad at those who don't come to faith? Great question. Natural question. And he, he responds, don't say that. 
Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to, to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw the garbage into? Now, as a human being, I read that, it's like a slap in the face. It's like, what? You don't don't have the right to make me a clay jar that gets garbage thrown into it. Or let's put it in an even more graphic way that gets used as a urinal. You don't have that right. What does he just say? Who are you to question what God does? See, God's in control. The problem is we don't always see it. We don't understand it. We can't explain it. And so we just discard it. It can't be. It shouldn't be. It's not fair. It's not right. And so this idea of autonomy trumps God's sovereignty. And yet what I want to push back on is that it never does. You may think it does, but you'll never trump God's sovereignty. He's always in control. He's always working. Do we always understand it? No. When you see um, someone die an untimely death, a young person, a child, an infant, you always have to say, you know, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And we don't. But what Paul would say is don't shake your fist at God and go, you don't know what you're doing. You don't have a plan. You don't have a clue. You're out of control. You're either unloving and you don't step in or you're hateful and you do step in and you do evil things. And Paul would say, be really careful. Who are you to question how God works? And there are men in this room, if given the opportunity, who would tell testimony to the fact that when they look bleak, when things look bleak, given enough time, they were able to look back and see the hand of God all over those moments in their life. And so your need for autonomy is real. It's alive. It's active. It's there. It's not even necessarily a sin. You just got to come to the recognition as a believer in Jesus Christ and a son of God that he is in control and he knows what he's doing. So when we look at the book of Acts, here's here's what I see happening as I've been working my way through it. It's the story of God revealing his grace through his son. Started in the gospel of Luke, that was the reason he wrote the gospel of Luke, was to show the hand of God sending his son in the form of a man, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, rose again, ascended on high, then he picks the story up in Acts chapter 1. And then he's still showing the grace of God. How? Through his son, through his ministry, through the lives of the men who were speaking of him, the gospel being spread. Well, the story of Acts is also about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It starts at Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see it over and over again, even this morning as we look at chapter 8. His presence and his power through the Spirit. It's his calling and commissioning of his servants. Yes, you had the 11 disciples who were there in that upper room, but there were many others. And there, there would be Philip, and there would be Stephen, and there would be other men and women who would come to faith and become his servants to take the gospel, Barnabas and Silas and others. God calling and commissioning. And even more important is his choosing and adopting of his children. And one one of the things that's going to happen as we move forward is we're going to see more and more non-Jews coming to faith. 
Ethiopian eunuch, we'll look at him briefly this morning. Uh, a Roman centurion, we're going to see all kinds of people from all walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds coming to faith in Jesus. And it's God choosing and adopting. And one of the things we'll see is that the Jews, the disciples, we're going to have a really hard time initially with some of these people coming to faith. Samaritans, as we'll see in chapter 8. They're struggling with what? Samaritans? Romans? But see, God's choosing and adopting. Had it been left up to the disciples, they wouldn't have chosen any of these people. They wouldn't even have witnessed to some of these people because it didn't fit their paradigm. It didn't fit how they thought things should be. And what's interesting about this, this issue of God adopting, and it's all throughout the New Testament, and Paul uses it a lot, that metaphor of adoption. My, one of my daughters and her husband adopted a... Um, little African-American girl two and a half years ago. Uh, she was an infant. Um, I don't know a whole lot about adoption, but here's what I know in their case. That little girl, Olive, did not choose them. There was no lineup of you know, potential parents, and then she kind of looked them over and, you know, they look nice. They, they'd be good parents. I'm going to choose them. No, they chose her. And that idea of God being in control and God choosing and, yeah, that's really uncomfortable, but you got to look at it from the right perspective because had they not chosen her, where would she be? If they had waited around for her to choose, it wouldn't have happened. She couldn't. She was unable. She didn't have the capacity. So this idea of God choosing and adopting children from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and we're going to, again, see it over and over again. So what does any of this have to do with chapter 8? Everything. Because we see it picks up, it says, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. I love the way Luke writes because he just, you know, here's Saul. He was there. He held their cloaks. He was happy about it. Oh, and by the way, a great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. He just suddenly switches gears and he starts talking about persecution. Well, it's not really a switching of gears because he just had Stephen Stone, which is a pretty severe form of persecution, right? Getting your head caved in with stones, being pummeled to death with rocks, but it carries on. And it brings up this idea of persecution, that the church was going to face persecution, and they're going to get scattered. Keep in mind, sovereignty of God. God is working. Chapter 7, the end of it leaves us wondering, why did God let this happen to Stephen? Why did God let a guy like Saul even breathe his first breath and become a persecutor of the church? Why is God allowing these things to happen? And it says, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. Third introduction to this guy. At the stoning of Stephen, glad to have it happen. He's also going everywhere to destroy the church. He is on a mission to destroy Christians, to get rid of the Christian faith, the way, as it was called back then. So how is this the will of God? How in the world could we look at this and go, this is a good thing? This is the will of God working. And you can come at it from two different directions, and both are going to cause you to have a headache. Did he cause it, or did he just allow it? 
did he call the person, cause the persecution, or did he just allow the persecution? Either way you come at it, guys, if God's in control, he caused it or he allowed it because it happened. If he's God and he's all powerful, could he have stopped it? Yes. Did he? No. So why? Why did all this have to happen? Well, it reminds me of Isaiah 55, 8. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. And so when we read these stories, that verse should come to our minds because God's ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. He does things differently than we might do them. And what we can't do is what Paul warns about. Don't shake your fist in his face and go, who are you to do things the way you do things? I have six kids. Anytime my children questioned my integrity, questioned my intelligence, it made me angry. Dad, what do you think you're doing? Well, first of all, don't talk to me like that. And second of all, it doesn't really matter what you think I'm doing. I'm dad and I'll do whatever I want to do. Well, I'm a sin-filled, sin-nature-controlled human being, but think about God when God is up in heaven, sovereignly in control, all-powerful, all-knowing, has a plan, working that plan to perfection, and one of us, one of his created beings goes, what the heck are you doing? What right do you have to allow this into my life? Now, God's all-loving, but God, God's also... God. And God looks down and goes, you know what? I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it, nowhere in the contract does it say, I have to answer to you, explain to you, defer to you. I'm going to do what I know is best, not just for you, but for the kingdom plan. But see, our problem is we focus on me. See, Stephen, Stephen didn't plan to get stoned. Stephen didn't want to get stoned. But I think if you could talk to Stephen right now, who's now in heaven, Stephen would say, I'm glad I got stoned because I see what happened because of my stoning. See, we don't understand, we don't get it, but we gotta understand that God's ways are not our ways. So we see in this, these verses, chapter eight, verses one into two, through, through this persecution that came that seems so unfair, untimely, can't be God's will, what happened? All the believers scatter except the apostles, and they scatter through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And if that doesn't ring a bell in your head, I, I need to smack you in the head. Because it, it ought to bring up what Jesus told them to do, right? Matthew 28, go and make disciples. Acts chapter 1, go into where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see here, whether we want to see it or not, the hand of God, because persecution comes, believers get scattered, they go through the regions of Judea and Samaria, and oh, Saul's going everywhere destroying the church. See, we see a negative, we see a positive. We see what seems to be totally negative in the sense of scattering of the church, but we also see the people moving out of Jerusalem and moving into where? Judea and Samaria. Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here's the problem. 
these men and women who had come to faith in Christ, the people, the 120 people in the upper room, the 3,000 who came to faith after Peter's sermon, the 5,000 who came to faith later, all of these people who came to faith in Christ were still stuck where? In Jerusalem. And they were not going to leave Jerusalem, I'm convinced, until the hand of God, the sovereign hand of God, kicked their butts out of Jerusalem. They weren't going to obey the Son of God until the Father of the Son of God made something happen to make them obedient. Why do I say that? They're still in Jerusalem. And we're, we're pretty far into, we're into Acts chapter 8 already, and they're still in Jerusalem. Why? Well, they liked it. They liked this new lifestyle they had. They liked their new friends. They liked the fact that they shared meals together. They liked the fact that they had 11 different apostles who could teach them God's truth. They liked this new thing. It's like when you find a good church and you don't want to leave it. And you just, man, this is cool. And then God says, no, I want you to go here. No, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to that church. I like this church. Yeah, but I want you to go to that church. No, but I like it here. I don't want to leave. They didn't want to leave. They had this wonderful relationship with one another, and the passage tells us that they also had a wonderful relationship with the people in Jerusalem. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 2. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Who are all the people? The Jews in Jerusalem. There was a point in time early on when they got along with everybody. And so it's this idyllic, kind of wonderful environment. We have this new thing called Christianity. We have all these new friends called Christians. We are worshiping together. We're eating together. We're sharing meals together. The rich are taking care of the poor. It can't get any better than this. But what did Jesus said? Go. Get out of Dodge. Leave Jerusalem. Go to Judea. Go to Samaria. Go to the ends of the earth. But I don't want to. And they're still there. They saw no reason to leave, I believe. We like it here. We kind of have a good thing going here. And here's what I definitely know. Not a single one of them wanted to go to Samaria. Why? Because they hated Samaritans. Nobody wants to go to Samaria. And yet Jesus has said, go to all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it's, it's almost like concentric circles. You got to go into Judea. You got to pass through Samaria. And then you got to go to the ends of the earth. I don't want to go. I like it here. I'm content. But verse four says, the believers who were scattered, and this is really important, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Did any of those people want to get scattered? Did any of them look for persecution? Did they wake up on Monday morning and say, Lord, would you bring persecution so it will kick me out of Jerusalem and send me to the uttermost ends of the earth? Lord, please bring that. I'm gonna guess and I think it's a good biblical guess that not a single one of them prayed that prayer. And yet what happened? They get scattered. And when they get scattered, they share the good news. And he says, Philip, for example, here he is introducing yet another character. Philip went to the city of Samaria. What? What's he, nuts? Why is he going to the city of Samaria? Well, A, because he got scattered. And B, I think he realized that, didn't Jesus tell us to go to Samaria? hey, has anybody been to Samaria? He goes to Samaria. And he told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message. So you got Philip, 
You got Samaria, you got the Messiah. And those three little things, those three words convey to me that God's in control. Why Philip? Why Samaria? Why the Messiah? Well, the Messiah is the one who said, go. Philip's one who heard and went, but he had to be kicked out of Jerusalem to do it. He was one of the scattered. And he goes to a place he didn't probably want to go, but where Jesus had told them to go. And again, the crowds listen. They're eager to hear his message from Philip. Who's Philip? Well, Philip is this guy that we got introduced to earlier along with Stephen in Acts 6, verse 5. They chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch. So he's one of the seven men who got chosen to meet the needs of the Greek-speaking widows, the Hellenistic Jews. He's also, more than likely, a Hellenistic Jew, just like Stephen. He's not an apostle. He's not one of the 11 disciples. He's this guy who came to faith in Christ, and he gets scattered, and he ends up going to Samaria. Now, as, as Matt, I think, clearly articulated, there's one of two things going on here. He's either a Jew, born a Jew, converted to Judaism, and he becomes a Christian, or he's born a Greek, I, I mean, Born a Greek, becomes a Jew, proselytized, then becomes a Christian, or he was born a Jew but grew up in a Greek environment. That's what it means to be a Hellenist. You're one of those two things, but it doesn't really matter. The fact is, he's a Jew who became a Christian and he's going to Samaria. And he's an evangelist, as we find out later. And he's a good evangelist. He's a successful evangelist. He loves sharing the gospel. He, he's going to go into there and people are listening. And, and what you ought to hear there is when, you, when he goes in and the people begin to listen and they're eager and they want to hear his message, what does that tell us? God was preparing the hearts before he got there. See, if God doesn't prepare the hearts, you can speak all you want. You can witness all you want. But if the spirit doesn't do his part, there will be no fruit. And you got to keep that in mind. When you see something and you think it's a failure, I shared, I told, I was faithful, I witnessed, and nobody accepted, it's okay. It's not your job to save anybody. It's your job to witness to everybody and let God do what only God can do. But they listened to him, and they were eager, and they came to faith. And he casts out evil spirits, and there's great joy. So once again, just like Stephen, you see Philip having this incredibly successful ministry. And it says, the people, in verse 12, believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And many men and women were baptized. So he's successful. He goes, he does what he was told to do, what they were all told to do. He goes to Samaria, and suddenly people are coming to faith in Christ. People are accepting the gospel message. It's great. It's wonderful. It's amazing what happens when we just do what God's told us to do, when we're just obedient. Go, get out of Jerusalem, move out, and watch what happens. Now, what's interesting in this passage is we're going to see something that's out of the ordinary. It's abnormal. Because in verse 14, it says, the apostles hear what's going on in Samaria, that they've accepted God's message. And what's inferred there is that the apostles, being Jews, being leaders of the church in Jerusalem, get news of the fact that Philip has gone to Samaria. Oh my gosh, can't believe somebody did that. And he's being effective. And so they go check it out. And as soon as they arrived, they prayed over these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What's going on? 
Now, this is one of those passages, and I'm not going to belabor the point this morning, but we have to be really careful what we do with this. There are those who would say that this is a, an example of and proof that you have to receive the second blessing. You have to be, um, have hands laid on you before you can receive the Holy Spirit. And I get it because that seems to be what happens here. It is what happens here. These people come to faith in Christ. They get baptized water baptism, but they don't get the spirit until John and Peter show up, lay hands on them, and suddenly they get the spirit. Well, what's going on? Is that the way it's always supposed to be? There are those who would say, yes, it is. This is an example of how we get the Holy Spirit. It's through the laying on of hands. It's a second blessing, so to speak. You get saved, you come to faith in Christ, but you still need to have the Holy Spirit. Well, one of the things I told you early on is that when we read the book of Acts, we got to be really careful how we read it. Because what we see here is it seems to infer that they didn't get the Holy Spirit, it was delayed, and it came by the laying on of hands. Why didn't they get it immediately like the people in the upper room? Why, why is there a delay? Why is there something different? Why did they require the laying on of hands? And is that now the standard operating procedure for the church? Is that the way it is today? Is that the way it should be today? So what, this thing of the baptism of the Spirit, when you read the book of Acts, always remember that it is descriptive, not prescriptive. He is not telling us this is how the church should operate from this point forward. Whenever you hear somebody say, oh, I wish we could go back to being like the church in the first century. A, you really don't want that. You really want to go through what they went through. You really want the persecution. You really want to be stoned to death. It was not as idyllic and pretty as, as we perceive it to be. But it's also... There's nothing in this book that is necessarily prescriptive saying this is the way you should always do it. As a matter of fact, there's nothing in this book that tells us how to worship daily. There's nothing in this book that tells us how to conduct a worship service. There's nothing in this book that tells us any of those things. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. He's simply telling us how things happen. He's recording different events taking place at different times at different locations involving different groups of people. Who are we dealing with right now in chapter 8? Samaritans. Different context, different situation, different group of people. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Judea. It's not even the ends of the earth. It's particularly Samaria. And so he's describing something that happened on that occasion. And you'll never see it happen this way again in the book of Acts. So that's why we have to be very careful that we don't take these and go, this is the way it always has to be. This is our pattern for everything, because it's not. So I've put in your notes this chart, and you can spend more time with it later, but I, I basically just went back and I looked from Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit came, up through Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion, just to show you that in all these occasions, it never happened the same way twice particularly when it comes to the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter two, they're up in that upper room. Everyone in that room was a disciple of Jesus and they had probably received the baptism of John. None of them had been baptized by Jesus, but they had received water baptism. They were also already believers and they get the spirit after their conversion 
but he just comes, right? Wind, fire, he comes. No laying on of hands. Acts chapter 2, we see 3,000 people come to faith as a result of Peter's sermon. They accept Christ. They hear the preaching. There's no laying on of hands, and it comes, the Holy Spirit comes after their conversion. And in all these cases, the Holy Spirit always comes after conversion. How about the Samaritans, what we're looking at today? They're saved. It says they were baptized, and then they got laying on of hands, and they get the Spirit. It's the only time we really see it this way. And we're going to see in just a second the Ethiopian eunuch. He comes to faith through the teaching of Philip. There's no laying on of hands. As a matter of fact, in that passage, there's no indication he ever received the Holy Spirit. What? Here's where you could go with that. Well, he's Ethiopian and he's a eunuch, so they don't get the Holy Spirit. Is that what that passage teaches? No. Did he get the Holy Spirit? Yes. Because the rest of Scripture teaches us when you come to faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. So, once again, four different occasions, four different ways. None of them are prescriptive. They're descriptive. See, God does things the way he's going to do things. He had a specific purpose. So this is unique. It's happening in Samaria. I think it's happening because you have Samaritans and Jews who hated each other. It was a unique situation. You have Philip, who's a Hellenistic Jew. He shows up into town. He starts telling about Jesus. They come to faith. He's not a native of Judea. He was not commissioned by the apostles. He just got scattered and ended up in Samaria. And John and Peter and the rest of the apostles are going, wait a minute. And so they show up to check all this stuff out. And they want to know what's going on. And they see the blessing. They can't deny it. They can't argue the fact that people are coming to faith in Christ. He's cast out demons. He's healed the lame. He's preach the gospel. People are coming to faith in droves. They can't deny it, so they have to give their blessing on it. And what they do is they confirm his ministry. This is important, guys, because this confirmation is huge. This is all new. Nobody had been to Samaria before. There's no precedent for this. Nobody except Jesus, who led the woman at the well in Sychar to the Lord, Nobody else had done this. So this is all new. And it would have been real easy for his efforts, his Philip's efforts to be misunderstood, misconstrued, and suddenly everything goes willy-nilly. So it was really important that the apostles come and approve what this non-apostle has just done because they're in charge of the church. So Peter and John show up and they need to see what's happening. And you're going to see as we move through the rest of the book of Acts, they're still going to struggle with, I can't believe he's bringing non-Jews to faith. I can't believe he's Samaritans, Romans, pagans. So it was really important for them to see this and give their blessing. There's also this risk that there's going to be false prophets and teachers who watch what Philip does and they start trying to emulate and we have a picture here in this, this passage of Simon the sorcerer. And we'll look at him in just a second. So confirmation and consolidation. See, God's building his church. God's bringing Samaritans to faith in Christ. And he's going to mix them into this melting pot with Jews. What? God, do you have any idea what you're doing? Are you nuts? No. He's building his church. And that diversity could easily lead to divisiveness. And we're going to see it all throughout the, gospel, or all throughout the rest of the 
the uh, New Testament, the letters of Paul in particular, that he's always dealing with what? Divisiveness. Go read First and Second Corinthians. And so God's trying to build his church and he needed Peter and John to be there as the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to give their blessing and to realize that God's doing a new thing, a new thing, because this is gonna begin to steamroll over the next chapters. And nobody had the power to dispense the spirit of God without the approval of God. Philip needed to have their approval and the laying on of hands gave that approval, gave the blessing. And so we see this guy, Simon, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him. Simon was a Jew. He was a sorcerer. He made money off of doing uh, witchcraft, which I believe he did through demonic means. And yet he says, and it says in the passage that he came to faith in Christ. I don't think it was a real profession because we see here, he sees them laying hands on people and it never says he received the Holy Spirit. He sees them other, he sees the others getting it. And he goes to Peter and John, he, he offered them money to buy this power. Gives you a real insight into what he's looking for. And he says, let me have this power so that I, when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. He's a Jewish sorcerer who makes his living off of supposed power. And he sees them do something and he goes, I got to have some of that. What's it going to cost me? And one of the reasons I don't believe he's a believer is Peter will light him up. And you can go read what he says. And what he says to him is not, hey, you misguided believer, you know, you, you wayward son. No, he just lights him up like he doesn't know Jesus from a hole in the wall. So you can abuse this stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons this is all happening is that as the ministry grew and spread and more and more people are taking it out, it needed to have authority over it. It needed to have justification, confirmation, and consolidation. So, he moves on again, and real quickly, we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we do see the sovereign hand of God. Because here's Philip. He just did this great thing. He's now moving on, and he gets a message. An angel of the Lord says, go south, down the desert road to Gaza, and I want you to meet somebody there. And he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. And, and again, I don't want to belabor this story because the, the real important point is that God's at work. God's doing what only God can do. And he meets this guy. He's seated in his carriage. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit says, go. Go talk to him. Doesn't tell him anything. Doesn't tell him why. Doesn't tell him what he's supposed to do. He goes over. He sees him reading Isaiah. And he goes, do you have any idea what you're reading? And that guy goes, I don't have a clue. I need somebody to instruct me. So he sits down. And here's what he's reading. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter, as a lamb is silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. What's he reading? The book of Isaiah, and he's reading a passage that has to do with who? Jesus, the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? What a coincidence. What, a, what, a, what blind fate. Isn't it amazing? No, it's the hand of God. So he shows up. Here's this guy, he's, a, he's reading from this book. He's been told to go, Philip, but he's not been told why. But it's really quickly revealed to him. Here's the Ethiopian. He's probably a Jewish proselyte. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. He has a scroll, which would have been very expensive to have. It happens to be the scroll of Isaiah. And he happens to be reading a messianic passage. And here, all of a sudden, shows up Philip the Evangelist. Divine appointment. Sovereign hand of God. Let me ask you this. 
Do you see divine appointments in your life? See, this is, the, this is a way of living, guys, that we have got to cultivate because today you're gonna run into people and you have the really strong possibility of going, just chance, no big deal, blow right past it. We need to see every opportunity as a divine opportunity given to us by God. God's in control. God's orchestrating events in ways that we can't see. Is God telling you to go and not telling you why? Is he saying, do this, do that, but you really don't understand why? Just do it. Just be obedient like Philip was. Is there a divine appointment somewhere in your calendar this week, this month? See, what I love about Philip is that he was ready, willing, and able. And it brings up uh, 1 Peter 3.15. If someone asks you about the, your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. See, God's going to bring somebody into your life today. Coworker, uh, barista, somebody that you could share the gospel with. But you got to see it as a divine appointment. Well, just to wrap it up, we're not going to dig into Saul this morning. We're going to pick him up next week. But chapter 9, once again, look at what he says. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Saul uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. He brings up this guy one more time and it says he's got letters from the high priest. He's going to Damascus and he's going there to arrest any of the followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So what's God doing? Meanwhile, Saul, here's Philip doing his thing. Samaritans are coming to faith. Here's what Paul will later say about himself. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. See, this guy was on fire. He was zealous. He was doing things for God. But guys, be very careful that you don't do things for God on your terms. You don't do it your will, your way, not his will, his way. Is your agenda trumping God's? See, serving God without submitting to God is a dead end. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Paul thought he was doing God a tremendous favor by killing Christians, but he was way out of line, and he would discover that. See, he wanted to do things for God. He was on a mission, but he was on the wrong mission. So whose mission are you on today? Are you going to just fill your agenda, go do your to-do list? Or are you going to think, what does God have for me to do today? Don't please God on your terms. Do it on his terms. Philip was serving God. Saul was serving self. So here's your questions. How would you compare the ministry of Philip with the mission of Saul? Both thought they were doing something great for God. What was the difference? One was zealous, killing people. The other one was zealous, saving people. Talk about the difference. Take some time to discuss situations or circumstances in your life or the world that make you question whether God is really in control. How might this lesson help you to see them from a different perspective? We just had yet another mass murder of innocent people. Last count, I heard 17, 18 people killed in that school. How is God in control of that? See, guys, if you don't wrestle with this, all these events that happen in life are going to really screw with your head. So talk about those things. Have someone read Proverbs 14, 12. In what ways are we seeing this lived out in our culture and even in the church? Father, I pray for these men this morning. Bless the time around the tables. Make it rich, make it deep, make it open, make it honest. And Father, may it be life-changing. Help us to understand that you do know what you're doing, that you are in control, that we can trust what's happening around us. And that Father, 
Help us to understand that we should want to be a part of what you're doing and that you're working in ways that we can't see behind the scenes, orchestrating events in such a way, Father, that we can trust you. Help us to live that way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.